If you would, please take your Bibles, open them to your Old Testaments, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 31, to be exact. And when I say Proverbs 31, perhaps that'll spark a memory of Proverbs 31 historically uh, being the wife of noble character or excellent wife and um, that whole, the whole last uh, 21 verses of Proverbs are all about the wife or the excellent wife is. And um, so, yes, I'm going to tell you what an excellent wife should be, um, having had much experience in my lifetime. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go there first. What I'm doing here, Proverbs 31, it introduces something for us that is very important. When you think about literature, especially Old Testament literature, you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating here. The Old Testament, when the Hebrews organized the Old Testament, they, org- they organized it in a way that told the story of God and His covenant with His covenant people of promise. So when they organized it, rather than making the Old Testament chronological, what they did, in other words, it didn't just go by when the books were written. What it went by was how do we best tell the story of Yahweh and His relationship to His people in a way that makes sense and draws people into the story, the true story of God and His love for His people. And so when they did, they grouped books differently. When the Greek writers came along and they made the Old Testament or they translated the Old Testament to Greek, the Greek writers thought, these Hebrews got it wrong. We need to put this thing linear. We need to get this thing chronological. And so they reorganized the books of the Bible. Why am I telling you all this? I promise I have a point. When you read Proverbs 31, if you're reading the Hebrew order, the very next book you would read is the book of Ruth. Ruth being part of that wisdom literature, and why? Because in verse 10, chapter 31 of Proverbs, an excellent wife who can find that excellent wife there, Eshethchil, I'm trying to get my hawk therein, the Eshethchil, which is the wife of strength, the wife of noble character, the wife who is godly and has godly wisdom. What very thing does the author of Ruth say about Ruth? She is the Eshethchil. She is the embodiment of what Proverbs 31 talks about. And so what this, what this is doing for us, why are we starting here? I'm laying the groundwork for us to begin our, our foray into the book of Ruth and to talk about, well, when you read this, sometimes over in, in, in years past, women or, or men may read this and feel and look at this list of things and feel like it's oh, wow, I mean, is that even achievable? And Ruth follows this to show us what it looks like when a wife of noble character, a wife of strength, is in action. She is fiercely loyal. She is assertive. She is willing. She's she's a woman of strong character. And when we look at Proverbs 31, lest we forget that the first nine verses are all about how King Lemuel should lead, so to a man of strength, Proverbs 31 Yes, does it talk about activities that people do? Of course it does. Really what it's getting at is the heart of those people. What is the character? And so as we make our way into Ruth, this morning we're going to begin with Proverbs 31. And our portion of Scripture that we're going to focus on this morning is the first nine verses that are an oracle, we're told, from the mother of King Lemuel to King Lemuel about how he lives and leads. And so that's where we're going to begin our study 
of the book of Ruth. So please, if you will, now turn or let your eyes fall down to Proverbs 31, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 9. So beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they, for, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, uh, we thank you for this new direction we are going, for this opportunity to look at noble character and to see it lived out in the characters of Boaz and Ruth. We thank you for people who have gone before us, who have taught us what it means to live lives that honor the Lord. And I pray this morning as we begin this study that you would use it to reshape our minds and hearts as we consider what it means to be people of truth in a culture of death. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. When we think of the word commitment, I've often said the word promise has a little value in our culture, and so does the word commitment. When you think about it, there's not very much commitment going around in modern culture, right? People are committed until they're not. And, and maybe that's not true of modern, only true of modern men. Perhaps that's been true throughout human history. But I think we can say definitively that people are committed until they're not, and, and then when they're not, they're just not. Uh, and, but, but the subtle messages of our time uh, there's this loss of sense of obligation. So if it's difficult, you just quit. That's reflected in the divor divorce culture that we see in our culture. If it's difficult, we just quit. Right? We, don't, we don't follow through. If it's inconvenient, we just move on to something that's more convenient and, and less stressful. If, if, it's, if it's costly, we bow out because it's just not worth it, even though we made a quasi-commitment or a firm commitment, but the costliness of it has compelled me to just move on and abandon ship. And this loss of commitment, I'll tell you what is the loss of. The loss of commitment is a fruit. That's a fruit of the reality. The real loss is a loss of sense of sacrifice where people just aren't willing to lay self, to lay flesh, to lay pleasure, fill in the blank with what you will, aside for something greater than themselves or something beyond themselves. I'm guilty of it, just like you are, just like humanity in general. Because that sense of sacrifice that requires me to lay it aside sometimes does not work through to my mind and heart. And that is true of humans in general. That is the overarching reason we see commitment dying out. But here's the thing. Commitment is a, is, is a very important idea, and it's interesting, and we need to remember this. And sometimes this is what for, informs people's lack of commitment. By, by necessity, to commit to one thing 
informs all other commitments, doesn't it? So when I say yes to something, I'm saying no's to other things. That's how commitment works. So when Rachel and I said yes to each other, we were saying no to any other potential suitors that might come our way. When you say yes to a thing, what that by default means is there are a myriad of no's to other things. And why? Why? Because by definition, a commitment informs other things that we will or won't do. So if I'm committed to this thing, I can't commit to this thing, and I can't be a part of this thing, and I can't go to this thing because I'm committed here. And, you know, maybe it's been true of every generation since Adam's fall, but we see it in ours. We see this sense of, ah, I'm just not really going to commit myself to that. But, beloved, here's, here's the reality, and, and, and we have opportunities in our culture to do this. As Christians, our commitment and devotion to God should inform everything that we do, don't do, say, don't say, relate, don't relate, and all those things. Because that one commitment, that, that one yes to Yahweh, really is a, is a big no to the world. And it should change how we live our lives. When we look at Proverbs 31, as I said, uh, opening up, it is a known, familiar chapter of Proverbs, the wife of, of noble character. Often that's what we think of when we think of Proverbs 31. And, and the, what, what, this, what this woman of God is able to accomplish is daunting. I mean, when you, when you read what she does, it's, it's dizzying, the productivity, the commitment, and it's that, this chapter is that, so at the very least it's that, but it is often forgotten that these first nine uh, verses to Lemuel are about leading and ruling well, are about what does it mean to be an honorable ruler? What does it mean to be, in our context, an, an honorable leader, an honorable man? What does that look like to be a man of strength? What does that look like to be a man of character? And so these, these first nine verses, they're a reminder of what it means to be a man, ruler, leader, you can add another adjective if you want to, of noble character. So when you look at this, what it tells us then is both the man, the leader, and the, the wife are defined by what's inside, and that what compels them to act is the character that seeks to honor God already embedded in their heart. And that's where we have to begin. If we're going to talk about what people do well, we need to begin where it begins, which is in the heart. It's really easy to focus on the things that people do well because those are outward and external. But the real issue, the real crux of the matter in biblical Christianity is what about the heart? Is the heart invested is this a heart for God? Is this a heart for notoriety, or is this a heart for the glory of God? Is this a heart to be honored and recognized, or is this a heart to serve God? Because the heart changes everything. And so when we think about commitment, a singular devotion, I think that's the title you have in your bulletin, a singular devotion, or as Jesus would later say, blessed are the pure in heart, those purely devoted when we think about that, it begins with the heart. 
And so Proverbs 31 is an iconic passage, one that is it's easy to overlook because it is so well-known, or it's easy to dismiss because it can feel unachievable. In the same way that sometimes people throw up their hands at 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> Who can love like that? Well, in Christ, we're called to. We won't do it perfectly, just like none of us will fulfill these first nine verses or the last 20 ver- uh, 21 verses perfectly. But what is the goal of the Christian life? To have a heart set on Yahweh that seeks to honor Him. And that's what the issue is here. What sets Ruth apart from other characters in the Bible? Well, one is her heart to honor Naomi, her heart to honor Boaz, and ultimately her heart to honor God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you die and are buried, I will die and be buried. You can't get much more committed than that. And so you have this profound beautiful, simple reality of in the heart of a Christian, what must be the seeds that are constantly bearing fruit, the seed of devotion to God that works its way out in all manner of different ways. And so if we're going to say yes to walking in the precepts of God, there, is, there are a myriad of no's to our flesh and to the world. And so, with those thoughts in mind, there's this one idea I want for us to see in these first nine verses, and it's this. Purity and clarity are God's call to the righteous. Purity and clarity are God's call to the righteous. So, when we're thinking about this, we're thinking about a heart that is focused. I alluded to it a while ago in the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says. Uh, So often, people want to keep that purely in the moral realm, and it should be. I mean, the pure of heart is one who doesn't seek to do things that are Uh, against God's sexual ethic or against God's ethic in general. But larger, much larger than that, the notion, and and I'll credit John Stott with helping me find my way on this. John Stott, as you begin to break down the language, the pure in heart is much bigger than just a moral category. At the very least, it is that, all right? So it's that. But a little bit larger than that, the person who is pure of heart has a heart that is purely devoted to one entity, purely devoted to one being, so that if I'm pure of heart, I can't be devoted to myself and to God. If I'm pure of heart, I can't be devoted to uh, having lots of money and to God. And you can fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill it in with. The pure of heart is the one who's devoted to God, and that devotion has mastery over the other devotions that you commit yourself to. And so when we're talking about this, we have, to, we have to give a nod to the idea that though the words focused heart is not mentioned in this paragraph, that's the push of it. That's the gist of it. So we're talking about a focused heart. So if we're going to have a focused heart, what does that heart or what does that person need to possess? Well, self-control. So self-control then is essential for a life that honors God. Now, we know self-control, right, is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is also strengthened when our devotion becomes more rooted, when our commitment becomes more firm, right? That works its way out practically in, our, in, in, physical, in the physical realm. That works its way out spiritually in the spiritual realm. Self-control becomes more firm the more devoted I 
come. Now, when we think about self-control, can you think of times where you didn't have self-control? I can. And, and, and maybe in, in a whole different experience uh, or a whole array of different experiences, we can think of maybe we lost our temper. Maybe we said some things we shouldn't have. Maybe we indulged that thing a little more than we should have, and, and so forth and so on. Those are all issues of self-control. And that, too, can feel almost like, how do you get there? I mean, how do you really learn self-control? But when we look through the pages of Scripture, let the Scriptures, beloved, let the Scriptures be our teacher. When you think about men like Daniel, yeah, we all remember Daniel. Remember his prophecies, one of the greatest books in the Old Testament. Do you know he's a man defined by self-control? When you meet him when he's a young man, what does he do? He would not defile himself with the king's food and ate what God would have him eat. He would not cease to pray. Brad, how could that be self-control? Because a loss of self-control in that situation might be to cease to pray to save your own skin. He remained disciplined, self-controlled to honor God. When you think about Joseph, there's another one. Joseph wasn't perfect. We don't remember Joseph because he was perfect. What we do remember is Joseph was self-controlled. When Potiphar's wife made advances toward him, what did he say? How could I do this thing and sin against God? You talk about self-control in a moment where he could have let his guard down, advanced his own career in the house of Potiphar. He didn't do it. Why? Self-control. Self-control becomes important. It becomes a tool of devotion. Devotion and self-control, they work in tandem. They work hand in hand. They are partners in our discipleship process. As we grow in devotion, we grow in self-control, and the more self-controlled we become, the more devoted we remain. And so when we're looking at this, self-control is essential. Right here, right off the bat, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. That's the first verse we get in Proverbs 31. So when you see that word oracle, it's tipping us off to something. It's tipping us off to something. This is just beyond conventional wisdom. It's in the pages of Scripture, the word oracle is used. It's tipping us off to this, this is instruction of a divine nature. This is God's commands for righteous and wise living. The first question we ask of the text is, who's Lemuel? We don't hear of him. Now, there is some speculation. A lot of Jewish legend has Lemuel being Solomon, and the words of this mother is the words of Bathsheba to Solomon. That's a nice speculation, but speculation is all it is. We have no way of knowing if that's even remotely true. And so we really don't know who Lemuel is. He just pops up here, but he's on the radar because God put him there. And these words are captured regardless of who spoke them because God wanted them in his word. And so they're there. But what we can say, what we do know of Lemuel is his name means belonging to God. So we know that he's a king because they call him a king in some capacity, whether it's a small tribal king, a large king, that doesn't even matter. And we know that his name means belonging to God. So for this one, whom is labeled as, named, belonging to God, there is a proper way to live and treat others, right? There's a proper way that we live in honor of the true king, and that goes out into how we treat other people. 
And so we can extrapolate that those belonging to God have a proper way to live and treat others. I love this word here, the words of King Lemuel, Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Taught is a great translation, but it doesn't quite get at the full sense of that word. The word there would be along the lines of discipline. And so when you think of discipline, don't just think of, you know, a, a paddle to the backside or timeout, none of those things. Think of discipline as along the lines of discipleship. So, in other words, Lemuel's mother didn't just tell him this once, right? She did what a good parent would do. She discipled him in the truth. Oh, King Lemuel, from the days that you were young, there is a proper way to live. There's a proper way to treat people. There's a proper way to carry yourself. There is a strength that we are to possess that is different from what the world views as strength. And so we're getting to the heart of what is a a parent or a grandparent or somebody older in the Lord, our primary job in these ways is to teach godliness. You know, so often it's easy to want to replicate yourself in your children or in whomever, and some of that is unavoidable. But the primary goal of all of us, whether we are parents, whether we are grandparents, whether we are aunts or uncles, whether we are just disciples in a, in a local church, is to be discipling, discipling, not discipling, discipling young people toward godliness. And we could be really rigid about it. That's, that's sometimes a pitfall we might fall into, to be super-duper rigid have sharp edges with very little grace. And if we are successful in that, we will raise Pharisees who are whitewashed tombs. Or we can be really, really loosey-goosey and say, well, they're better off than I was when I was a kid. And we can raise licentious people who have no real heart for holiness. Or by the mercies of God, claiming the mercies of God, leaning into the grace of God in and with and for our young people, we can lead them toward godliness, however imperfectly, and encourage them. The days of stumbling will come to you too, young one. And there's one place to fall, and his name is Jesus Christ. So we're pressing people toward godliness with a sense of holiness and a sense of love and grace. And both of those matter. So she goes on. We have the words of his mother here who is not named. Literally, what, my son, what are, what are you doing, son of my womb? Or what, literally what it says in Hebrew, what, my son, what, son of my womb, what, son of my vows? So you have this three-pronged thing, son, son of my womb, son of my vows. Both son and son of my womb are going to be very affectionate terms. She's identifying with him, you're mine in a humanistic way, in a humanly speaking, you're mine. You belong to me. You're my son. You came from my womb. There is an expression here of responsibility. I am responsible for you. You belong to me. I'm invested in this. I'm invested in you. So you've got this notion of genuine care. What, is it, what does discipleship look like? Well, from parent to child, it's going to be a little different than other relationships. But from parent to child, from person to person, what should discipleship look like? Genuine care, genuine affection, a real interest in the hearts of other human beings. 
a real interest to see people grow in the areas in which they need growth. Now, she adds something to this. So, son, son of my womb, both affectionate terms, son of my vow. Son of my vow gets a little deeper to the subject. Who, a vow in Hebrew or a vow in the Old Testament was no light thing. Well, let me say this. A vow in general is no light thing. So when we take vows, and we do that in different ways, we take marriage vows. We may take vows in a court. Uh, For some churches, there are vows of membership. And all those vows are important because in those vows, you're calling God to bear witness, and you're making a promise, making a promise. And marriage vow, the most common one, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do we part? What are you doing? You're promising God. You're going to stick with that person. You're going to make a commitment. So when she identifies Lemuel as the son of her vows, what she's telling us is that he was dedicated to God. He was committed to God. He was raised to be raised in the admonition of the Lord. The expressed truth of what it means to walk with young people in life and discipleship. But that sets the tone for the rest of the, of the rest of the instruction to him. That sets the tone for it. He's the son of my vow, this one who is to be raised and who is to walk in the admonition of the Lord. When we are raised in and we walk in the admonition of the Lord, it changes how we live. It changes what we do, what we're to be, and how we are to carry ourselves. And so then she begins into the moral instruction. So she set it down, this one belonging to God. These are words from God. This is my son, the son of my womb. This is the son who has been dedicated to God. So where do we begin? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. So, and he says, and, he, and she goes on, it is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So here we go. What is, what is his instruction here? What is the instruction here to Lemuel? Two things. To avoid immorality, to avoid immoral relationships, and to avoid debaucherous living. So that's the negative. Don't be immoral and don't be debaucherous. Those two things are not good. So, if we're going to put that in the positive, hey, Lemuel, be committed in your life to what is right. Be clear-headed so that you can judge well. So, this is a call, a clarion call to being clear and to be committed. Now, we need to understand here, this is not a knock on women in general. By, By saying, do not give your strength to women, you need to note, she puts that in the plural, What is the common practice of kings in ancient society, and I guess maybe even now, who knows, is to be sexually immoral, to have no constraints. Why? Because I'm the king. I can do what I want. You find in ancient literature the the boy's mother telling her son, don't do that. That's bad. It leads to immorality, and ultimately it leads to destruction. She's giving him a bit of wisdom that is absolutely and demonstrably true. And history and experience bears this out. Don't be sexual immorality. Why? 
because it detracts from purity. Don't give in to sexual immorality. It detracts from purity. But she uses a word here, don't give your strength. When I mentioned the word a while ago, or the phrase for women, the esheth chayel, the word here for strength is chayel. There's argument as to, is, does she mean money? Is, is strength here meant to be understood as money? Is strength here meant to be understood as stamina, vitality? Don't give the best of yourself? The answer to that question is yes. It is those things. It's all of that. In other words, my son, don't give the best of who you are to immorality because immorality detracts from your purity. And when you lose purity, you lose something fundamental to your humanity. Loved of God, can we not look at history? Can we not look at the world around us and see that is absolutely true? Ask yourself, did Rome just fall one day because of, of, of a bad military? No, they fell because over the successive years, the immorality just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew until they were utterly corrupt, morally default and bankrupt, and nothing in the tank of purity and morality, and they fell. Not just Rome, Persia has the same story. Ancient Greece has the same story. And if we watch modern times play out, I'm telling you, people, if Jesus tarries, we'll look back on us and they will see the same story. We've watched it again and again, and yet we learn very little from history. That sexual immorality, his mother says, um, your ways to those who destroy kings. When we look at immorality, beloved, it's not just that it can destroy is that it always does because it destroys human beings who have relationships. It destroys those relationships. The larger context of those relationships is family. And the larger context of family relationships is community. And the larger context of community are cities or city-states and then states and then whole regions and then countries. And you can see the ripple effect of it. It just works its way out until it is a tidal wave of death. Why do you hear me mention uh, morality and the sexual ethics so often? It's not because that's my hobby horse. It's because that's so fundamental to humanity, and when those things go belly up, so do the people. The church has had opportunities throughout the centuries to make a firm stand, and we've been called puritanical. We've been called prudes. We've been called all manner of names. We use the Puritans very flippantly. Puritans was not an, it, wasn't, it wasn't a compliment when that term was coined. When the term Christian was coined, it was not a compliment. There's a reason why we get labeled, and it's because we are called to stand for a very specific ethic that the world wants to laugh at and say, that's so archaic, that's so yesterday, and yet the Word of the Lord stands forever. And so here we are. What will we do? King Lemuel in some year B.C. was told, do not be immoral. It will destroy you. And here we stand in 2023, and the prognosis is the absolute same. And so she says, avoid that, Lemuel. 
There's nothing cool about it. There's nothing attractive about it. It is death. Then she adds to that. So you've got immorality and then debauchery. It's not for kings. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what had been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Now, you're talking about ancient culture here. You're talking about the normative practice of kings to drink and to drink a lot. That every, every feast, every meal they had, there was alcohol available. So is she telling him to choose absolute abstinence in the face of what was culturally acceptable? Because sometimes a cup of wine was part of a meal that was a promissory agreement between two countries. She's not telling him to indulge in complete abstinence. What she's telling him not to do was indulge in drink in the way that was common among kings. Why? Why? Because when someone is going to be a king, they are responsible for the lives and souls of other people. When we are responsible for the lives and souls of other people, lucidity is very high in value. Being lucid, being clear-headed, having good judgment, being able to make spot judgments about things and people that are going to affect them for years to come. And especially with regard to those who rule, their lucidity was a vital part of their lives. But I'm telling you, I have been guilty of lacking in lucidity. Maybe you have too. And when we are lacking in lucidity, we don't always make the, the upright choice, right? And sometimes we make really stupid decisions. And there could be any number of reasons why we might be lacking in lucidity. In this particular context, she's talking about not being intoxicated because intoxication leads to just poor judgment. And it does. It does. People do dumb things under the influence of intoxication. When we think about one of the clear essential aspects of fidelity, being faithful, it's lucidity, it's clarity of mind and heart, being clear on what my purpose and what my commitment is here. That's one. But in this particular context, what does she say? Well, don't do it, and rulers don't take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed. Forget, lose focus. Forget what is right and good for their fellow man. Forget. When you look, I'm going to pick on Rome because they're an easy target. The, the, Rome and the, sla- or the, uh, the poor and the, and the slave population in the Roman Empire were just oppressed people. And it's no wonder when you look at the, the rulers in the highest order, most of them were constantly drunk, constantly given to hedonistic pleasures, constantly given to, given to th- all manner of immorality that, be- that began and ended and was laced with strong drink. They lost sight of the good for their fellow man. She goes one step further here. Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Change them. Literally change them. That's what the Hebrew word is. Literally change them. Change the rights for the sons of affliction. Why? Because in their lack, in, in their muddled thinking, and in their intoxication, they allow self to be influenced badly. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is, is they don't look out for the weak. 
So can I bring this down to street level for us? One of the reasons that lucidity is important, clear, clarity of thinking, that's just what lucidity means, clarity of thinking. One of the reasons that lucidity is important is because it affects how we relate to people. It affects how we treat people. And beloved of God, those lacking clarity don't look out for the weak. They're looking for the next pleasure. And God forbid that that be the heart of any person. So here we, we have to say that alcohol in itself is not evil, but it can lead to great evil. Most things in and of themselves are not evil, but if they are not approached cautiously, they can lead to great evil. But then he reverses course, doesn't he? He says something that you won't find much of anywhere else in the Bible. So rulers and kings don't take strong drink, but do give strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. One commentator that I read this week said, in commentating on this verse, give strong drink to the weak and perishing means do not give strong drink to the weak and perishing. And that would be easier, but it seems like if that's what Lemuel's mom meant, she would have said, don't do it, not do it. He tried to, he tried to make the argument, that, uh, argument I think that a lot of Christians would be comfortable with, oh, she's just being sarcastic. She's not guys. That's not what's happening here. She is very literally telling him, hey, to the weak and perishing and those who are afflicted of soul among you, give them some wine. Invite them to your table. Let them come to the party. And so what she's talking about here is alcohol in a medicinal way, not to be abused, not to be taken unthoughtfully, but used correctly. To whom? The perishing, the bitter of soul, who would that be? Those who are physically or mentally infirm. Why? For a temporary distraction. Yet she's encouraging them, bring them out to the party. Invite them to your table. Let them eat and drink for a moment in time. Why? Because the burdens they bear are so heavy, it's an opportunity for a moment to forget. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable that the Scriptures encourage this, but that's what they say. And so when we think about it here, now, please, this is what I'm not saying. Go out and party like it's 1999 when you leave here, okay? Uh, don't do that. But there is an opportunity when we are hurting. I was at a funeral one time. I had just done the funeral of a, of a World War II hero, and his family was hurting. And I, and I watched one of the granddaughters come in there with some red wine, and she poured a cup, and they sat there, and they drank their wine in their sorrow, and they remembered their granddad. They told war stories. They told stories of his humor. That's what Lemuel's mom is getting at, not people getting sauced, right? Just to be clear. But an opportunity for people who are in a season of hurting, bitter, perishing, whatever, whatever's happening, who are broken, who just take this moment to say, we're going to forget our troubles for a while. Now, I want to add my caveat to this. For people who struggle with alcohol addiction, don't do it. Find something else. It doesn't need to be out. Go, go eat a bunch of Snickers bars or, or ice cream if that's your thing. Do something that's not going to wreck and destroy your family, right? So here, the caveat is don't destroy your family. Be wise. Be discerning. But the reality is, is we need to look at what's before us and in the ancient world, they rejoiced in the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine was grapes. Grapes produced wine. 
and wine was often brought out at parties. So she says, let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Again, one last thing. I am not advocating people getting drunk, and neither is the Bible. It's saying what the author, what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for everything under the sun, which means that most of the time we should stay away from strong drink. But there are some times when we can indulge, but not overindulge. Make sure I'm clear on that. She closes us out, two succinct verses, eight and nine. Open your mouth, open your mouth, it's repeated. For whom? For the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute, for to judge righteously and defend the rights of the poor and needy. When we think about, I, I so, am so grateful, ESV just left it, the mouth for the mute. Uh, speak up. Who speaks up? Well, kings do, but righteous people, those belonging to God, speak up. So often you'll hear me talk about uh, the issue of the sanctity of life, especially life in the womb, and there are reasons I do it. Uh, there, it, it is by, by nature, it is a political issue, but it's just one of those things I think transcends politics, right? And this is where when I read verses like this, this reminds me of the church's call to stand up for life because babies in the womb can't speak for themselves. They're the mute. <laughs> Who will speak for them? We will. Those belonging to God will stand up for the mute, for those who are destitute. Read, when you see destitute, when you see poor and needy in the Old Testament, I don't doubt that that's meant literally, but we also need to think of categories of people who are oppressed and weak and who cannot speak up for themselves. So widows would have been in that category, um, all, all manner of poverty, but how does that translate into modern society? Well, for us, what it means is, is that we speak up for people who are hurting and broken and weak and who can't. In other words, we stand by the little guy, and we speak up what is right and good and righteous. The word here where she says, judge, literal translation, to judge righteously, to make good decisions, to be wise, and to stand for what is good and right and true. And so you know what that means, beloved? That means in a world where it's easy to do what is easy, we don't coddle people with lies. Now, that doesn't mean we always come in knives out, guns blazing. There may be a time for that, and it's not all the time. There needs to be a depth of humility, grace, and love, but honesty. We don't affirm what is false, right? We don't look at what is happening right in front of us and say, you're telling me this false thing. You're asking me to go along with this false thing, but I can't do it. I love you. I want to see healing. There's a level of brokenness here that needs restoration, but I can't play along with something that is false because Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And as those who reflect Christ, we reflect truth. So when we look at this, the sum of it, Godliness is actively saying yes and no. Uh, a yes to one thing is a no to another, just like a no to one thing is a yes to something else. And we are called to actively say no to the things of this world precisely because, precisely because we are saying yes to God. 
Righteousness does demand a constant yes and no, a yes to God, a yes to truth, a yes to precepts of righteousness. No to my flesh, no to the world, and no to all those things that would draw me away from the Lord. This is pertinent and poignant because once we get into Ruth, we're going to see a man in Boaz who says yes to Yahweh, yes to righteousness, yes to truth. In a culture, in a period where the judges reigned, in a culture that said in those days there was no king and each one did what was right in his own eyes, we find a man and a woman doing what is honorable to the Lord. And so when we think about what does it mean to be a man or a woman who is devoted, a man or a woman who is singularly committed to the Lord, and that commitment shapes all others. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time to be together this morning. Thank you for these words. Uh, Be with us, I pray. Help us to be men and women of character, of heart, of hope, of faith, and faithfulness. Minister to us, I pray, in the name of Christ Jesus, that we might be ministers to other people. Amen.